Well, good morning. Wow, I just very smoothly dropped my battery pack. I'm glad it's still working. Thanks, Mark. This is great to be here. My name is Alan. I'm a youth director here. Uh, serve as an elder as well. Going into my 11th year of being here. Yeah, praise God. Thank you. Um, it's really been a joy to be a part of Chippewa Valley Bible Church and to uh, just to be, be a part of this community. Really look forward to Sunday mornings being together with, uh, with this church family. It's so important to us as believers, something that uh, I hope all of you have a joy of being here. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, this is uh, so important in the life of the church, the life of us as believers to gather together, to worship together, sing together, uh, be in the word together, pray together. Fellowship, there's so many good conversations that are happening before and after services, and um, I pray that those are encouraging and full of godly wisdom um, as we do that. Today, October 2nd, is a significant day for our family in that our oldest daughter, Tirza, is, uh, she turns 22 today, and she's um, doing an internship in Africa. We've talked about that a little bit, and appreciate your prayers for that as she is learning the culture of Islam as well as learning Arabic, uh, the language of Arabic, and, um, and just going really well. So appreciate your prayers. Continue to pray for her as it um, increasingly gets more challenging to be a part of that culture there and being separated from everything that she knows back here. And uh, she has like t- a year left to go to be there, so it's, it's going to be a long haul. So thank you for praying for her. Um, it, this also happens to be the due date for other daughter, Mara, uh, for her and Ben Blake and Mike and Kelly and Emily and myself are waiting any day now to become grandparents, and so that's, uh, that's an exciting thing. It gets harder and harder to walk by the nursery and not just uh, wanting to hold on to those babies, but yeah, they've, they've got rules about that, and so we, we follow those. But hey, I'm open to babysitting. I love it. love kids, and uh, it's a joy uh, now to be thinking about grandparenting, and especially now we're with our grandchild's going to be pretty far away, so we won't be seeing them that often, so I might be, you know, holding your child, all right? <laughs> Just try to understand. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, continuing, and uh, the text for today is 18 to 25. Now, I want to start in 10. There's really kind of the whole first five chapters are kind of dealing with the disunity that this church was struggling with. And so there's a lot, a lot of ways. I mean, we are creative people. We can create disunity in a lot of ways. And the church in Corinth has given us some examples that we don't want. Um, But that's what Paul is addressing here in in this church. And so we're kind of picking off these one at a time. And I'm going to go back to 10 because a lot, there's a lot of overlap some things that really speak into, uh, into this passage that we have today as well. So if you would stand, please, as we read God's Word. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among, my, among you, my brothers. 
What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Holy Spirit, we need you. Help us, teach us, convict us. Amen. I want to give a little, just a little uh, background again here about this context that the city of Corinth um, is a, an important city in the Roman Empire. It's densely populated, and it has um, in, in there the, the main groups of people, Greeks, Romans, uh, there are Jews that are here. And in this culture, uh, philosophy is, uh, is a big thing. Like there are, I've heard that there are up to 50 different schools of philosophy. And so um, uh, people would debate, right? And so you, you might, as a Friday night, that might be something you go down to go do is listen to the philosophers or go out into the city square, or whatever they, may, they might be debating or talking about some aspect of culture, some, some thought that they're expounding on. And then you, you might really enjoy listening to one of these philosophers. That's why, uh, why Paul was critiquing them last week about, oh, you, you're, you're just saying you like Paul or you like Cephas because you like the way that they deliver the message. And so sometimes uh, in these philosophical debates, it's not as much about the merit of the argument as it is about the way it's presented. And so there's a lot of different philosophical arguments, uh, philosophical strategies and techniques, and um, this is something that, of course, then the church or the people of that culture became a part of who they were as well. And then all that stuff trickles down into the church. So I want you to think about, um, I think it's Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth, he spends a year and a half there. As he preaches the gospel, people respond to it, a church gets started. And you've got these different groups of people that are coming together. And you know when you came to faith in Christ, right, especially as an adult, 
If you came to Christ, you know that you still had a lot of your old ways of doing things with you. That all just didn't stop existing. Old thoughts, old patterns, old uh, ways of thinking, though those are dead to us now and they hold no power, we still at times revert back to them. And taking on Christ, it takes a long time. Though, though we're saved and set apart for God, becoming more and more obedient to Christ takes a while. It takes practice. It takes time. It takes this community thing. And so this church is only a couple of years old. And uh, so you have got all these different groups of people coming together to form this church. And you could appreciate that it might be kind of messy. And so as Paul is out uh, on his, uh, other, visiting other towns, he's starting to kind of get reports back that, hey, Corinth is not looking too good. Okay, it's kind of messy there in Corinth. And so Paul is like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write him a letter. You know, this is pre-internet. So he's going he's gonna to write them a letter and try to correct some of the things that he is hearing and of course, for us, as we read this, for us to think, hey, are there some ways myself that I am allowing the wisdom of the world to influence how I view Christ? Are there ways that, that our culture is influencing me to live for Jesus other than the message of the cross, that Jesus is crucified, he died for my sins, and my new life is in him? So we would do well to think about that for ourselves. And I was thinking about um, in fifth grade, my friend Jason and I did a homework project. And I think this was, this was really peak for me. I think this was the best project I ever did, actually. I think I kind of peaked academically in fifth grade. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but So we did this project, and it was on the Louisiana Purchase. You know, in 1803, for $15 million, we got 828,000 square miles of land. It was a pretty good deal. And so, uh, so we did a, re- a report on that. We did a map. And then we were going to really wanted to go above and beyond, and we made a flag. We were going to sew a flag um, that was uh, after uh, around uh, 1818, after the, some of the states in Louisiana Purchase became states. So then there was up to 20 states, and then you had to 13 stripes, right? So 20 stars and 13 stripes. And we're excited and um, we're fifth grade boys, okay, just to remind you, and we don't have a lot of sewing experience up to this point, really none. And um, so we, we cut out the things, and uh, we start sewing, and we're enthusiastic, we believe in it, we're, we want to do it, we kind of in our minds have a finished picture, but as I started to sew some of the, the stripes on, fortunately, uh, Jason's mom was there, and she stopped me. Um, although I think I, my fingers might have become a part of that flag, which um, wouldn't have been good. And, uh, you know, my heart was right, you know, the direction was okay, but, but I didn't have any experience. I didn't really know what I was doing, and I needed somebody there to be with me to, to stop and correct me, and thankfully she did. And we did finish the project, and it would, we have a gr- you know, sewing group that meets here on Mondays. They would just really laugh to see what it looked like. I mean, Jason's lines actually were pretty good, and my sewing was uh, more zigzaggy, let's say. Uh, but after a while, after doing a while, you know, we got to be kind of decent at it, um, and, uh, and it worked out well. We did, did really well on that project, and I know you care about that. 
But I want you to just think and have a little bit of grace uh, for, for these people here, these new people in Christ who first generation don't have a lot to go from, and now they're trying to do this thing of following Jesus. And, uh, and what Paul is saying to them, what's most important is for them is to not bring in these worldly influences into their life, but to keep the simple message of Christ crucified. And so uh, this first section here, I want to kind of just break this into two, two, two chunks because essentially all of us fall into two categories. Either we didn't receive the message of the cross and we're, it's a stumbling block to us, or we have received it and we are saved. The simplest way to kind of think about the world, either you are in Christ and with him or you, you are not. And so for these, uh, these people here in this church, Paul is challenging them to not take on the way of the world, which is foolishness. And I want to just think about a couple of ways of why the simple message of the cross, why Jesus uh, being killed, being crucified, being whipped and beaten and scorned, all that Jesus went through to be up on the cross, to die and rise again, overcoming death and our sin, why that might seem like foolishness to these people. And you take that first group of people, you take the, the Greeks and the Romans who were into their philosophies and the, and the talk, uh, the rhetoric that would happen. And, you know, when you think about philosophy and some of the, the rhetoric, it never really quite reaches a conclusion that you settle on. It never feels like it's over. There's always maybe a better argument that's going to come, a better presenter that's going to be there. So you never really kind of land on one person or one idea because there might be something better that comes along. And when we have this message of the cross, this is it. This is the message for us to cling to. This is God's plan of redemption for his people is through Jesus and the cross. And then you think about Jews and what is their background here with something that is like crucifixion. It is a curse. Going back to Deuteronomy 21. This is what it says, if someone guilty of capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So even the Jews in, in their religion, it is, a, it is a curse to be hung up on a tree or on a pole or what Jesus was on, on this wood. So you kind of think, hey, there's some hindrances here. There's some hurdles because in, in the Roman culture, it was really a nasty thing to be crucified. Obviously, it was for the worst of criminals. For the Jews, this was not something, uh, this was obviously something, it was a curse. So who would want to be cursed why would we follow somebody who's accursed? So kind of thinking about it from maybe uh, somewhat worldly perspective. But I love the turnaround here in, in Galatians that points back to Jesus and the curse. So if, we, if you uh, are able to turn to the book of Galatians, just a few chapters further ahead in the Bible, you're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Galatians 3, 11 through 14. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, 
For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to take on sin, to be a curse for us. What we deserved, our rebellion against God deserved death, but Jesus took it on himself. And so we must receive that message too, that Jesus died on the cross for us. I know in our culture, it's a big thing, the the DIY movement, the do-it-yourself movement. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, up until like World War II, it basically was DIY or die, you know. Um, but, But now it's kind of a niche thing that we would do these DIY projects, you know, if it's a yard project or a home project. Hey, look, mom, I did it myself. But sometimes what we do is that we apply a DIY to our salvation, to our faith. We want to have our hands on this. We kind of want to make some adjustments. We want to make it, we want to do it ourselves. So we mix a little bit of worldly wisdom. We mix some things from the Bible. And ultimately what we get to is a moralism. We basically become a religious people and it does not save us. In fact, it it takes us away from the gospel and unto death. And so we do not want a DIY religion. We want Jesus. We need to give our life to Jesus and trusting in him because only in Jesus do we have salvation. Now, I want to give um, one example. I'll just give, I'm going to give one example. I have it down here, actually, on my phone. I took a picture of it. But um, one example where worldly wisdom can creep into our way of thinking as Christians. And uh, this can be really dangerous because we commingle, we combine, kind of, uh, I guess there's a spiritual word, uh, syncretism, where we take one system of religion and mix it with another thing. And sometimes that can happen to us uh, in, in Christianity where we say that we want to follow Jesus, we're trying to follow Jesus, but we also have some things in our culture that are attractive to us, and so we kind of combine them together. Because maybe we just feel like if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose out, I'm going to miss out, I'm not going to accomplish everything that I feel like I should or need to. And this one just happens to be uh, don't don't groan on me here, but this is uh, this has to do with politics, and I want to read this. This is from a politician who's basically being asked, like, "Hey, shouldn't Christian politicians or Christians approach politics differently uh, because of our faith in Christ?" And this is the response of this uh, this politician. He said, "I'd love to not have to participate in cancel culture. I'd love it." Uh, I'd love it if it didn't exist. But as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game. We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they're playing hardball and cheating. We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing while we've given up ground in every major institution in our country. 
I thought it's just kind of a good example of a mentality, of a worldly mentality can seep into our Christianity. We can feel like, hey, doing things God's way is not working. I'm not getting the results I want or I'm losing. I just want to say to you, Christian, that if you feel like you're losing in something, you are in the wrong fight because God does not lose. Okay, and as Christians, we do not lose, even though in the world's eyes, it may look like losing. That's why Paul says it, it looks like foolishness to the world. Jesus looks foolish to the world because here's a man, Jesus, who came into the world. He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He raised people from the dead. And as all that was culminating, people were ready to crown him king and put him on a throne and people would follow him. But instead of that, he went to the cross. And they mocked him and ridiculed him. Hey, if you're Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you know, get off the cross. You can do it. But winning for the Christian is not the way of the world. That we must become weak and die to ourselves, then live the life that God has called us to. And that could look so different for everybody. I don't know what it is, but it's not the same aspirations of the world. And we have to, we have to remind ourselves that just like these Greeks or these Romans or the Jews, you've been discipled by the world for a long, long time, depending upon how old you are, okay? It's, I think this is why, why the majority of people who come to faith in Christ do so before age 18. We don't have this, all this indoctrination working against us. But we have to throw off that worldly thinking and come to the faith of Christ, that our life is now in Christ. I want to just give three things here that might be signs, three signs that you might be following worldly wisdom and not relying on Jesus. The first sign is that you don't pray. A prayerless person is somebody who doesn't put their confidence in Christ, but their confidence in themselves and their work. Prayer says, I need you, Jesus. Prayer says, I need help. Prayer said, I can't do this without you. I need your wisdom. Um, This is the first year I've done this, which is just ridiculous, but uh, I invited the church to participate in praying for our Wednesday night youth group ministry. And it's so awesome. Now, in a couple of weeks, we have 30 people that are praying for every minute of time that we meet together. And it is so encouraging and comforting to know that people are praying for our Wednesday night time together. And I can't fully really articulate how much it means to me and what a difference it makes. I am thankful for that. There's a a quote I sent out uh, to those people from uh, Robert Murray Machane talking about prayer Here's what he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Just as you are interceding, praying for other people, Jesus also is interceding for you. How cool is that? I mean, do we forget sometimes, Christians, what resources we have? We have to be mindful Uh, to pray, to come to Christ, 
Our knees do not knock when we are kneeling on them. Secondly, uh, if we're getting worldly wisdom, not following God, we're not getting into the Word. If you're not getting into the Word on a regular basis, it may be a sign that you are following worldly ways. Uh, in Psalm 119, such a great psalm, talking about how we are to delight in the law, to delight in God's goodness, to delight in what He has written for us, the way for us to live in Him. And when we read the Word of God, we are hearing directly from God. He is speaking to us. And I know oftentimes we think, oh, it'd be just great if I could hear from God. And every time we open up the Bible and read it, we are hearing from Him directly. It is such a rich treasure, and we should pray for each other to desire, to hunger and thirst, to long to be readers of the Word. The third thing, uh, just the third thing that might be a sign that we are following worldly wisdom is that we do not repent of our sin. Sin kills. And when we repent of our sin, we give up, we relinquish, we turn down the power of sin, and we receive the power of God. Repentance is what we're called to do, and when we are close to God, every, even the little sins, the small things bother us because we know that it's something that God does not want us to think about, to talk about, or to do. When we love God, we hate sin. But when we love the world, we don't mind sin because that's how the world operates. Humility and repentance of sin separates Christians from the rest of the world. The second, actually there's not as much in the passage about it, but this is our kind of our second part here in, in the sermon is to those who are saved. So I just want to read uh, a couple of verses again, these last two verses, 24 and 25, and then I want to give a few examples from the Old Testament for us just to encourage us, to remind us, and that's what the Bible, so much of the Bible is written to remind us. But in verse 24, it says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. People who are, are saved are the people who have been called by God. That God has invited us to be with Him through His Son Jesus by His blood, that our sins are forgiven. So in our, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our evangelism, one of the things that we can do is to pray, John chapter 6, pray that God would draw. Because if God does not somebody, if God does not give a heart to somebody to receive him, they will not see him. They will be like these people who are Jesus just becomes a stumbling block. And you know, in your conversations, maybe a coworker, a family member, a neighbor, you've tried to talk to, to them about Jesus or share your life with them, and they think you're ridiculous. They don't understand the way you live or why you do the things you do. Though you continue to love them, you care for them. You demonstrate the life of Jesus to them. They just don't see it. So we pray that God would give them eyes to see, a heart to respond. 
And I was thinking about this, this text about how the cross of Christ is foolishness to those that are perishing. That if people do not turn to Christ, they will spend eternity separated from God in that, in that they will not receive the goodness of God. And there's uh, just two simple examples for us, and I hope it's encouraging just to remember these uh, really famous stories. But I go back to them often, and one is uh, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And if you remember, uh, the Passover scene, this is coming at the end of the 400 years of slavery that the Hebrews were in Egypt, and Moses, uh, God chose Moses to give uh, miraculous examples to Pharaoh of the power of God over the power of gods in Egypt, that how much superior God is. And this last plague is the plague of death. And there's going to be instructions to the Hebrews about how they can avoid the plague of death. In Exodus 12, this is what it says. Starting in verse... I'll just start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation, all the people of Israel, that on the tenth day of the month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what you can eat. And you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you'll keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now, this, this sounds crazy, right? Uh, like, this is, this is the plan. This is how you're going to avoid having your oldest son die in your home is by putting blood on your doorframe. But yet, in a simple act of obedience, you can have, uh, you can avoid death, right? A simple act of obedience, you can avoid death. And this, isn't this the central message of Christianity? that by the blood of the lamb we are saved. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. And then verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, all, and, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. Christians know that when you walk in faith to God, when you put your faith in God through Jesus Christ, that you are protected, that he is with you. That you can trust that whatever's happened in your life is for your good. 
Even in the worldly eyes, it may seem terrible, may seem like you're losing, may seem like, you know, uh, things are falling apart. But sometimes the best things in our life happen when they're falling apart. When we get to the end of our rope, it's a good thing because then we grab onto Christ even tighter. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come up. We're going to get to close with a, with a, a song. But I also want to remind you of the story of David and Goliath. Because this is one, I think, this is so good for us to remember how crazy of a scene it was to have this huge battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, and they agreed just to send out their, instead of having this big battle, everybody, we're going to send out your best warrior, and we'll just settle it one-on-one. And whoever wins that battle wins the war. And of course, the Philistines have this ginormous man named Goliath, who is huge, and the Israelites have nobody like that. They have no one like that. They are not willing to send anybody out because it looks like basically suicide to go out and fight Goliath. But what they don't realize or what they don't seem to depend on or recall on is that God has promised them victory. If they will step into it, if they will in an act of faith go out and fight Goliath, that God will give them victory. Not in a human way, not in their strength, not in their savviness, not in their cleverness. You know, for me, I'd be looking up a YouTube video, how to defeat a Goliath. So then here comes David. This basically this boy. He's coming to bring some cheese and milk to the warriors. And he hears the shouting. He hears Goliath taunting God. He's like, what's going on? Why is this guy out here taunting us? Why aren't we responding to it. Why aren't we going down to fight him? And they're like, hey, we're scared. We, we can't beat him. And then, they, you know, of course, they try to do the worldly things. They try to give him the helmet and, and their armor. And, and David's like, no, no, no. no I'm, I'm going to go down with what's comfortable to me. I'm going to go down with what I know because God is with me and I'm going to have this victory because God has promised it. And in faith, he goes down and faces Goliath. And so for us Christians, forget about the worldly circumstances, the worldly things that you might think about how to solve problems. And get on your knees and come to Jesus and ask him for help. Come to him, he will be with you. He will give you what you need for the circumstances you are in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day to be together. I thank you so much for this church, for this family to be together, to remind each other, to encourage one another, to sing together. Lord, I know I'm not alone, but it's even more of a reality when I gather on Sunday morning to see these people together, know that we are in this together. We are contending for the faith together, praying for each other, singing together. And God, I pray as uh, we leave this place today that we'll be just filled with hope, with gratitude, of the reminders of who you are, that what we have in you is about you, Jesus. It's your power, your glory, your goodness. And you've called us in to be a part of that family to enjoy it with you. Lord, we pray against anything that's a distraction to us. We pray if there's any worldly way in us that you would convict us of it. We'd be faithful to repent and to receive more of you. 
We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.